0: Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Father, we do give you thanks again for the incredible work of the Spirit, of your Spirit that indwells those who believe, that indwells each and every one of us that are born of you. We thank you, Father, for understanding of what it means to be taken from one level of faith to another level of faith, from one level of strength to another strength, from one level of glory to another. This much you've taught us, Father, anything that isn't growing is already dead. And so we thank you, Father, that as we continue to look into this eternal word of yours, this truth that came from heaven, that we have the opportunity to grow, to be strong, make wise decisions, have good understanding, and have a grasp on what life is really all about. And we thank you, Father, just for the wonder, I mean, the absolute wonder of what it means to walk with you, even as you did with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's always been your desire. The first thing we've learned of you in Genesis is that you did indeed. You just walked in the garden with your kids. You love to fellowship with us. So I thank you, Father, that you helped me just in these few minutes just to communicate a few of these things out of First John. And I trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to turn to the first epistle of John, you know, little John on the back. First John, second John, third John. And again, Abby, thank you so much for the loan of your glasses. Hallelujah. Otherwise, we'd be in real trouble. I read from an Amplified Bible, as most of you know all the time. I want to read a little bit of the introduction to First John so that you can see a little bit about what the Apostle John was speaking to. So if you'll allow me, I'm going to just read this here. It says, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, this isn't, you know, this is the before we actually get to the scriptures. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John have been, from earliest times, attributed to John the Apostle who wrote the fourth gospel. All four books were probably written about the same time, probably between AD 85 and 95. The content, the style, the vocabulary seem to warrant the conclusion that these three letters were addressed to the same readers as the gospel of John. The first letter seems to be a summary that assumes the reader's knowledge of the gospel as written by John and offers certainty for the faith in Christ. Now, this next part is the part I want you to hear. The first letter, this is talking about 1 John here. The first letter indicates that the readers were confronted with the error of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S which means knowledge, Gnosticism. Let me go, keep reading here and you'll see what they say. The first letter indicates that the readers were confronted with the era of Gnosticism, which became a more serious problem in the second century. As a philosophy of religion, it held that matter is evil and spirit is good. The solution to the tension between these two was knowledge, or Gnosis, Through which man rose from the mundane to the spiritual. In other words, Gnosticism began to say, this is it, this is all there is. There's matter right here, that's all there is, is what what we see. And then there's spirit. And the only way that you could, as it were, understand the two is to just be full of knowledge. You must continually feed yourself on knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Now, again, remember that almost all error. Are you listening? All error is a truth that's taken to an extreme. Almost all error is a truth that's been taken too far. Knowledge is good, right? But what began to happen with Gnosticism is people began to, as it were, think that knowledge in and of itself was enough. In other words, my knowledge of the scriptures. I've been at this, you know, as I said, for some 35, almost, good Lord God, I mean, it's 37, 38 years I've been involved with this. So I've found myself having a lot of knowledge. God's given me a good memory. I've never tried, as you've heard me say before, I've never ever tried to memorize any any scripture at all except for the book of James. For some reason, God had me do that a long time ago when I was young. But Knowledge is something that, in the, with the gift of teacher, pastor, whatever, whosoever, you know, as you continue to study this word, you're going to gain more and more knowledge. So I've found myself over the years, I have a lot of Bible knowledge. That's, you know, which hopefully your pastor needs some Bible knowledge. Amen? Amen. Pastors need, pastors of churches, it's pretty good if they have some Bible knowledge. Amen? I want that amen loud down there. I'm looking at these two kids down here. Excuse me, Youth young adults, young warriors to become, anyhow. But Gnosticism, this whole issue, and that's what this, what. well, let me just keep reading. Let me read that part again. The first, This letter, he, it seems to be, it says that John was confronting the error of Gnosticism which became a more serious problem in the second century. As a philosophy of religion, it held that matter is evil, spirit is good. The solution to the tension between these two was knowledge, or gnosis, through which man rose from the mundane to the spiritual. In the gospel message, this led, led to two false theories concerning the person of Christ. Now, I'm not going to explain these in any length because there's not time, like I said. One was called docetism. D-O-C-E-S-T-I-S-M, which regarded the human Jesus as a ghost. That is the view that Christ only seemed to have a body, but didn't have a body. In other words, Gnosticism led to that. The second thing was something called Serentianism, which made Jesus a dual personality, at times human, and then at other times divine. So both of those were in error, to say the least. So this is what John begins to confront in this. But the main thing I want you to listen about is this issue of Gnosticism or just knowledge, where knowledge in and of itself became king. Okay? Now let's start at 1 John, right at verse 1. And again, you know, Scripture is something. Well, the very fact that God I I don't I think it's something happened to me about 12 or 13 years ago. I don't know when. I don't maybe Julie may recognize it more, but when I read Scripture, suddenly I no longer um, well, one thing I can say is I I couldn't skim it. I couldn't skim uh, Scripture. I couldn't just read it for the sake of reading it. I mean, not that I had wanted to, but before, but before, it's like I read the Bible because I knew I needed to read the Bible. Do you know what I mean? It's the right thing to do. I need to read the Bible. So I'd read two or three chapters and say, oh, praise God. Okay, I did my bit. I did my duty. And then I'd spit and go ahead and be whoever else I was supposed to be that day, if you know what I mean. It was like a duty. And, uh you know, over the years studying blood covenant and something I I understood the difference between Cain and Abel's offering that. Cain was what's called the father of deism. Deism is the belief in God based solely upon knowledge, or solely upon the sense of duty, with no, with no leaning towards revelation. In other words, he brought his gift, remember, Cain brought his gift from something of the ground that could always reproduce again, and that's deism, obeying God from a sense of duty alone. Whereas Cain brought his offering from the first of his flock, something that could never live again. And it proved this revelation of the necessity of blood and so on. But basically, I'm just, I don't want to get off on that. Deism is the belief, is, is belief in God from a sense of duty. His offering was not received. When you do something only from a sense of duty, His offering was not received. That's why even even a church, when financial when the offering goes by, if you throw something in there just because you think you're supposed to, you may as well keep it in your pocket. Uh, when we worship the Lord, if you lift your hands just because somebody else is lifting your hands, you may as well lay them down. It's anything that's done from a sense of duty alone doesn't carry any strength or might or power with it. Anything, everything that has life is something that proceeds from the heart. Remember? From the heart proceed the issues of life. So it's this thing where God wants a whole lot more than a fragmentary little Bible study. He wants a whole lot more than us having a bit of knowledge, where, we, you know, when you can play scripture games, or I can quote more scriptures than you, type of thing. Ultimately, what we're going to get to is just the simple truth about, again, the presence of God. He wants us to go beyond knowledge, to where we finally understand that it's all about Him, and somewhere along the line, knowledge becomes wisdom. In other words, I just don't, it's not that I just know 1 John verse 9, it's that the life of it is just coursing through my veins, which is, which keeps me in a sense of right standing. But let me just read, and we'll get on to it, like I said, because I'm a bit frustrated because I will... I don't want to take too much time, but at the same time, I don't want to do it in confusion. Amplified Bible, verse 1, 1 John 1. John says, We are writing about the word of life in him who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard, whom we have seen with our own eyes, whom we have gazed upon for ourselves and touched with our own hands. I mean, right there, think about the passion that's in the statement right from the beginning. He said, this isn't, like it says in one of Peter's writing, this isn't some cleverly made up fable. They said, this issue of Jesus Christ is something that we had firsthand knowledge of. We were there. We touched him. We saw what happened. Okay? Let me read it again. We are writing about the word of life in him who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard, whom we have seen with their own eyes, whom we have gazed upon for ourselves and touched with our own hands. Verse 2. And the life, an aspect of his being, was revealed and made manifest and demonstrated And we saw as eyewitnesses and are testifying to and declare to you this life, the eternal life in him who who already existed with the Father and who actually was made visible, was revealed to us as followers. Verse 3. Now what we have seen and ourselves heard, we are also telling you So that you too may realize and enjoy fellowship as partners and partakers with us. And this fellowship... Everybody say fellowship. This fellowship that we have, which is a distinguishing mark of Christians, is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ the Messiah. Now you have to understand the age, the time. This man is writing and saying that we actually have the privilege of fellowshipping with Jehovah God Almighty. Remember that basic statement, all other religions except Christianity are a picture of man reaching out to try to find God. But Christianity is the only religion on the planet that shows God reaching out to man. Right? Say yes anyhow, it's true. Whether you say yes or not, it's true. And so this is a phenomenal statement. See, again, we read so quickly. What I started to say earlier is, somewhere along the line, I just found myself I couldn't read the Bible fast anymore. I had to slow down and just let each verse Kind of saturated my spirit. Verse three again and says, and this fellowship, so this was a huge statement, and this fellowship that we have, this fellowship that we have, communion is the word kohania. This fellowship that we have, which is a distinguishing mark of Christians. In other words, this is supposed to be something that really marks us out from any other people on the earth. We are a people that can have fellowship, communion, anytime we want to, with the very creator of the heavens and the earth. That's, that's quite a statement. This fellowship, which is a distinguishing mark of Christians, is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Verse 4, and we are now writing these things to you so that... Our joy, in seeing you included, may be full, and your joy may be complete. King James says, we write these things unto you that your joy might be full. That your joy might be full. In other words, if you're a depressed, grumpy old person, you know, like that cat on they have all the time showing on Facebook, grumpy, that grumpy cat. Anybody know the picture I'm talking about? And they show this cat, just his face. Like, oh, well, anyhow. Kind of looks like Jeff back there on a bad day. Right, Jeff? Sorry. Pray for him, Des. But that your joy may be full. Even that, you see, you have to stop at all of them. At some point, you have to make a decision to believe God's word. And we have to move, again, remember, from knowledge, from Gnosticism, from just wanting the knowledge of it. To knowing that if it's said in here, if it's promised, if it's stated as something that is ours, then that's that needs to become a goal if we don't have it now. God wants your joy to be full. And this is one of the things, again, that you begin to notice. You know when you meet, a, don't anybody, this is not condemnation, it's just true. You know when you meet a true Christian actually has fellowship with the Father and with His Son, because they've got joy. Do you hear me? Oh, well. Let me see your joy face. Oh, God. But seriously, that's what it's saying, and this is what you've got to understand. This is why there's some people that just, you, you'll hear other people say, this, that, that guy just radiates Christ. You get around him and it's just, you just feel the strength and the, 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 the you just feel Jesus. You feel like you're with Jesus when you're with this guy. That, that young woman is so full of God, it's amazing. She's always speaking good of others. She's always building people up. She's always saying good things. One thing I learned a long time ago from my spiritual fathers is to watch and, again, to listen to when people speak and how often people do speak negatives, how they have to always bring something heavy, heavy, heavy. It's got to be heavy. God is, and, and, uh, I won't call the names, but some friends of ours in America that we were, blessed to lead to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They really got a hold of prayer wonderfully, but bless her heart, this one individual, she just, every time you got around her, it it had to be heavy. God is about to explode into this. God's going to kill them. God's going to rip this apart. And I mean it's just like constantly and she's constantly reading from the Old Testament prophets about how God did expend his wrath upon you for your hair bun was too tight and you know I mean what well, I mean just whatever it's just constantly and her prayers were I was like oh god you know it's just and you sit back and you go I don't know see and I'm in the presence of God I understand what they mean but I, I go to the Bible, and it says, "In His presence, there's fullness of joy." So I, I have to question when somebody's always, "How you doing? Great. Where'd you come from? Church. How you feel? I'm really, I'm really blessed. I so love coming to church. <sighs> Anyhow, you know, people get mad at me when I say that stuff. But honestly, if you are saved, we used to say this: if you are saved, you need to notify your face. Honest to God, really. This is why so much of the world doesn't want what we show them because it's not really Christ. We are—we don't realize it, but we fall into the trap of religion. We're—we're we're showing them this practice. Of different forms of law and legalism and whatever, and we've taken the new covenant, we've taken grace, and we've made something law, made law out of it afresh. You know, I got listen. It's the truth. All I know is this. I, I just, I, I something. I don't know why, but somewhere along the line, I was taught by right people, and I spend like you've heard me say. I spend eight, probably I spend ninety-five percent of my time in the New Testament. Because that's where we are now. You can't constantly show people Old Testament scriptures and say, this is what God's going to do to you, because that's a flat-out lie. Because that aspect of God, you know, God's wrath was expended upon Jesus Christ. He, Jesus took it all so that we don't have to have it. This is why again and again, and you, i don't. sorry I said so many times, Romans 2, 4 is a dividing line of Scripture. It's the, he said, are you shamefully ignorant of the fact that it's the goodness of God? It's the goodness. Turn to your neighbor and say, goodness, goodness. Turn the other side. Just say goodness about 20 times. Goodness. It's God's goodness. It's God's Goodness. I mean, when I first caught this stuff, I remember in my own, wherever I was in a room, I remember just because i taught myself to read the Scriptures out loud, I remember reading that in Romans 2, and I just kept looking at it. It's the goodness of God that causes men to repent. It's the goodness. It's the goodness. It's the goodness. It's the goodness of God that's intended to draw men's hearts and minds to repentance and to accept the truth. It's the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. God's heart is that we see how good he is. Because again, in God's mind, if we ever possibly paint Jesus for who he really is, in God's mind, people will want him. You know, it's just, you know, it's not rocket science. Verse 4, we're writing these things to you so that our joy in seeing you included, included in what? Including this partnership that he spoke of in the previous verse, may be full and that your joy may be complete. And this is the message, verse 5, the message of promise which we have heard from him and now are reporting to you. Are you ready for the message? There's only two verses in the Bible where it actually flat out says what the message is. People will always, if they ever ask you, what's the Bible really about? What is the message of the Bible? Well, there's two verses. There's one here and there's one in 1 John 4, 1 John 5. Here it says, this is the message. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness. Not at all. If you did word studies there, you'd find out it, it speaks to the extreme limitlessness of limitlessness. There's no darkness. God is light. That's, and you see, how many of you know that also the Bible says that God has made God and his word are one? Is that true? Is that true? God and his word is one. And when he comes back, Jesus is called what? The word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Right? See, keep it simple. When you apply the Word to a situation, you're applying God to it. When you take God's Word, then you're taking light to it. This is why God chooses you and I to walk in the revelation of what He's done. Because when you walk in the light, your light begins to dispel a darkness. That's that's all. Please, you know, we make it so difficult and hell has worked overtime for centuries, millennium, again, to get most people in churches to be down, always looking at something they're not doing. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be doing this. And they got tons of preachers telling them what they ought not do. And, you know, you you do, again, remember, remember, don't go out here misquote me. Yes, indeed, we do need to let people know what sin is. But, again, remember, the Bible says, teaches you're not qualified to communicate to people about sin until you first communicated to them about the grace that came through the blood of Jesus Christ that redeemed you, his sacrifice, his sacrifice, so that you don't have to constantly do it. Now, that's, that is the gospel. That is the good news that Paul was not ashamed of. I wish I had those four definitions of gospel, but I don't. But this is the message of promise which we have heard from him, and now we are reporting to you. Hmm, ye verily. God is light, and in him there is no darkness in him at all. No, not in any way. So, if we say that we're partakers together and enjoy fellowship with him, When we're living and moving or walking about in darkness, we're both speaking falsely and we are not living and practicing the truth which the gospel presents. Verse 7, but if we really are living and walking in the light as he himself is in the light, we have true unbroken fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses and removes us from all sin and guilt keeps us cleansed. Now, I really want you to catch that in the Amplified. Notice it's in it's in these brackets, the bottom part. Keeps us cleansed from sin and all its forms and manifestations. Now, I'm really frustrated because I actually need closed because of the time thing, and I'm not really to it. But the main thing, oh, God. One of the, the, one of the most important issues about God's grace and love is being taught here. Paul is communicating to people that it's not knowledge alone. If I, if, if you could go home and really, really read 1 John 1, 1 John 2, and then you discover why 1 John 3 1 says what it says. 1 John 3 1, remember, says, Behold, what manner of love is this? <laughs> that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. You know, it's this incredible question. Can this be true? Can God have actually bestowed this much love upon us knowing that we're foul creatures at times, we make all these mistakes at times, we blow it here, there, and everywhere? Because what he's about to say in a little bit, he said, if you say that you have no sin, you make yourself out to be a liar. But you have to study the whole all the chapters to really get to what he's trying to communicate. He's saying, all you have to do is be honest. I'm going to have to just stop with this. I can't go to the rest of the stuff. We come to the next verse where he says, if you'll confess, he said, all you have to do is, he said, if you'll confess your sin. God is faithful, it says, and God is just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But the point that people don't really get there is this, thing where, like it says in brackets here, it keeps on cleansing you. It keeps on cleansing you. How many of you know that, you remember the word sin just means to miss the mark? There's nobody in this room that doesn't miss the mark in areas. Amen? Even Matthew. Matthew, you have to admit, every once in a while you may, just every once in a while you may miss it. Oh well, anyhow. But the point is everybody in here sins, as it were, and that we miss something. The Bible talks about sins of presumption, sins of commission, sins of of, of omission. So, you know, sometimes it's sin because you don't do what you should be doing. Sometimes, sometimes it's sin because you do what you know you ought not be doing. But what Paul's trying to communicate is one of the biggest lessons in Scripture and that's why Rod doesn't want to stop here, but Rod's gonna to have to stop here. It speaks about the fact that if you just to be honest, you you do all know that God already knows everything there is to know about you, right? You do know that you can't hide anything from God. Anything? I said you do know that you can't hide anything from God? I mean not even that. You can't hide anything. You can't hide anything. He already knows. So Paul, he—I mean John—begins to speak here of people that come and they know they're walking in darkness, but they say, "No, it's okay because you know I'm saved, so I don't—I don't ever have to worry about it again." Again, it's a truth taken to an extreme. What Paul, what keeps saying Paul, what John's trying to communicate to people here that their joy might be full is all you have to do is be honest. I got a real revelation for you. God kind of likes honesty. Hallelujah. That's why you may as well just tell it like it is, because it is what it is. Amen but he's saying if you'll just this, he said this is that this is the thing that people don't get is the continue, the continuity, the continuing action of what the blood of Jesus Christ does, what the, what, the, what the grace, what his sacrifice actually paid for is that if you're just honest with what you know you're making a mistake with, in other words, when you know that this, that this was wrong, if, just, if you have an honest heart, it's just all about the heart. If we just come before God and say, God, you know, forgive my attitude. I, should, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have been like that to my parents. I shouldn't have been like that to my kids. I shouldn't have been like that to my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Stop that. But, you know, if you're just honest, the Bible says that God will be faithful. and I've taught this here before, but let me just run it real quickly. You can't use the word faithful without something being priorly in position. In other words, something has to already be in place for you to be faithful too. And it says that God is faithful. If you'll confess your sin, if you come with an honest heart and confess a bad attitude or whatever, God will be faithful to the covenant that he's already made saying that he would forgive. And just, and just means he recognizes what his son Jesus did as the final payment, the only payment for the sin of man. If you just be honest and come before God and say, forgive me, I really blew it here. Forgive my attitude. Forgive my stinking thinking. It says that when God sees that honest heart, it says he not only forgives you because he's faithful to what he said he would do to his promise. He not only forgives you for that area of sin. He's not only just to honor what His Son did to make this available, but He said, when you have that attitude and that understanding, the blood cleanses you from all unrighteousness. You you don't get that, you see. In other words, anything anywhere else in your life that's not aligned, that is sin from God's perspective, because you're honest with what you do know, He forgives you from everything that you don't even know about yet, that still causes you to fall short. Hallelujah. And He, <laughs> I don't think I've ever in all my life of preaching wanted to, One hated stopping more than I am right now because of what this stuff leads into. Because it's incredibly dramatic to see because it's what produces the freedom. It's what produces the absolute freedom of knowing that I now, Rod, can have fellowship with God any time. I have no sense of unrighteousness whatsoever because of this revelation of this love of God that is so astounding that when the Holy Spirit moved upon man, that even the Holy Spirit, (laughs) we used to say even the Holy Spirit had a question. What manner of love is this? What manner, what incredible quality of love is this that the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God? It just goes on and on and on, but please do yourself a favor. Get the amplified. Read these first two chapters in particular out loud, slowly to yourself a lot and pray first and say, Spirit of the living God, teach me. You're the great teacher. Show me, teach me, because you'll find yourself walking in a freedom that you didn't even know was available. And that freedom makes you bold. It makes you walk with your shoulders back and your head up high. And it's not arrogance anymore. It's just knowledge of God, but not knowledge alone, not gnosis, not gnosticism, but now you have knowledge of His presence. You have this sense He's actually with me. I mean, He's actually with me. See, we can quote the Scripture and say, God will never, He will never leave me or forsake me, right? We can, most of us can all quote that out of Hebrews. But there's just all the difference in the world from being a pack rat with Scripture and knowing Him. That's what this is about. When you know Him, it says, there'll be something like a smile on your face. There won't be this constant moving to the left and moving to the right and moving to the back and moving to the front, being mad one moment. There's a calm that comes. There's, (laughs) this morning... Before we left, I turned on John Hagee for a moment. He was talking about meekness. I turned to Julian and I said it's one of my favorite word studies. My favorite word studies in the whole Bible. The Greek word and you know, about Moses being meek, Jesus being meek, and we're to walk in a spirit of meekness. We are to walk in the same spirit of meek. The word meekness, let me I'll finish with that. I'm not I'm sorry. Greek word for meekness is prautēs is spelled p r a u t e s as if you needed to know that but when you really see it it says that meekness is not weakness like men think when they hear the word meekness it says meekness this is the exact definition out of w vines expository dictionary of new testament words It says, meekness is that equanimity of spirit. Equanimity just means that not up and down, just one level. Meekness is that equanimity of spirit that causes one to neither be elated or cast down simply because one is not occupied with self at all. And it says that Jesus was the meekest of all men because he knew he had the very power and the and the all-abiding resources of heaven itself at his command. Now think about that. Jesus was the meekest of all men because he knew he had all the resources of heaven at his command. And then it finishes with this, and I love it when you really catch this. It, it meekness, the meekness that the Bible teaches is the fruit, the fruit of power. In other words, if you do actually have power in your life, it's not going to look like somebody walking, I'm going, I'm Mr. Authority. I want you to know I walk, I have a, you know, what? You that's arrogance. Like there's all the difference in the world between authority and arrogance. But meekness, in other words, if you know, if you know right now that you've got all of the might in the world at your disposal, you don't have to brag to anybody. Do you? You don't have to show off. You don't have to brag. It causes this, this meekness. There's a calm, an equanimity of spirit. And that's what begins to happen when you move from the knowledge that, yes, we are to obtain. You've got, you need the knowledge. But I've got to tell you, like I say over and over, it just you have to work with knowledge well, it depends on how persistent your prayer life is. But the more you work with knowledge, if you stay at it and you stay in prayer. I've known a lot of people who had tons and tons and tons more knowledge than a lot of people I've met, but they have no ministry any longer because they never became people of prayer. Now, you got to hear that. This is what this is talking about. They were they were the, they got to the point that all they, they were they became consummate theologians, at the expense of knowing God. Did you hear what I just said? They could quote, they could give you theory, they could back to front, but they missed the big picture. They didn't know Him, therefore they had no joy. The only thing they got, the only satisfaction they got out of life was being able to debate somebody else into a place where their opinion seemed to be the correct opinion. That is a very low level of living. Our God is a very personal God. I said He's a very personal God. He wants your joy to be full. You cannot spend time with God if it is true that in his presence there's fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore, then if you spend any time, much time, in that atmosphere, you will find yourself spending more time smiling. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday.